The Arcade Report is a Final Plank media production, and you can find more of the team's work at finalplank.com. So, you know, let's start off with the big one, it being the 50th anniversary. What is it about Atari that make it so eternal? I think we stood for innovation, and also we were the genesis story. So you always have a hallowed position when you're the first. Yeah. You know, the history of video games is oftentimes the early days of the history of Atari. Yeah, I mean, we, we had no money, <laughs> no factories, no market presence. The only thing we had was, was creativity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, the beauty and the truth with Atari is that I love this and I enjoy it. What do you think Atari's role is, not just in video games, but in popular culture today? I believe that it succeeded because of creativity. And so I think it has some chops there, you know what I mean? And so I think that we have a lot of power in the Atari legacy and brand that can really propel us forward. Yeah. And when we chose the Fuji logo, I wanted to be an upward swoosh. It's a collective, it's aspirational. And so right now, it would be good to take the innovation legacy and push it forward into the future. That's right, exactly. A founding father of the games, and goes by a few other names, struggling to reclaim its fame, a story to watch, I'm sorry, for in its tales come joy and woe, as Pac-Man, Pong, and E.T. know. The company from long ago, I present to you, Atari. Hello everyone, and thank you for listening to the second episode of the Arcade Report. Episode 2. We have all heard the name Atari, whether we were born in the mid-60s or this very decade. Its breath is synonymous with games like Pong, Joust, Asteroids, Super Breakout, Centipede, Yars Revenge, and so much more. They're also known for their Pac-Man and E.T. release, but for a whole different reason. Founded in 1972 by electrical engineers Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, the company name itself has thrived and survived 50 years of developing games, consoles, and concepts that stood or crumbled to the test of time. Of the many things we remember, Atari is no stranger to innovation in a way that carries the spirit of a gambling American businessman. For every success it brought to the table, however, so much more was taken to the flame, and the strategy of theirs is seen to the present day. Because it's important to give their official side of the origin, let's check their About Us and the Atari homepage. It reads, and I quote, Atari, Atari is one of the most recognized and celebrated brands, brands in the world. The world. Our, team Our team is dedicated, dedicated to honoring the legacy of the brand. Of the brand. And building upon its success so that Atari continues to be associated with fun for years to come. Atari played an integral role in the development of the arcade game, game console, and personal computer industries. Atari's iconic games including Pong, registered mark, Asteroids, registered mark, Centipede, registered mark, Missile Command, registered mark, have been played by many millions, and the brand continues to bring joy to gamers with its expanding portfolio of PC, console, and mobile games. Atari's core businesses include video games, consumer hardware, licensing, and blockchain. The team at Atari is focused on creating value by expanding and integrating each of these businesses under the leadership of our CEO, Wade Rosen. End quote. It's, uh... Hmm. 
very flush with their achievements and contributions over the years. And of course, no publicly owned company of the right mind would point out their missteps. But don't worry, that's what we'll be doing today. But I'll try to glorify their later moments too. And because the history of Atari is so vast, I believe that this account will be done in a multi-part series. My initial goal was to, in fact, make 12 individual episodes to cover different tales of gaming history. But it would behoove me to reconsider this line of thought as making half the series about one company would degrade this whole notion. It is with my own magically executive powers of running the show that, well, while this will get broken into multiple parts, I am treating it like a single episode. And therefore, I'll keep my personal promise about talking about 12 different topics. To you, my friends, that means more content, baby. There's a lot to cover, so let's not delay any longer and take it from the top. The Origin of Atari. Their logo and name, which I assure you can picture in your mind fairly well if you grew up in the 20th century, is very Japanese-inspired, despite the business being next-door neighbors to the Silicon Valley. The logo, a vertical line with two sloping lines to meet at the top, was drawn by Evelyn Seto. And I say this next part with mild criticism in mind because it's three freaking lines. It was then redesigned by George Opperman, a graphics designer who will also go on to make some of the art for Atari's cabinets and pinball games. There is some speculation as whether it was meant to make a reference to Mount Fuji, but more importantly, it was intended to look like the letter A, and to resemble the two paddles and a court line in one of their earlier hits, Pong. The name Atari, and hopefully this doesn't come out of left field to you, watch out, is also of Japanese origin. Both creators, Nolan and Ted, were fans of the Japanese game Go, and Atari is to symbolize when a player will be able to capture one or more pieces in their next move. The actual word is Ataru, which translates to to hit a target, but close enough. It's a sign of good fortune, a little bit of American marketing in Japan, and the basis of all things to come to the company. The year is 1971. And together, you and I are going to do a little countdown to Oblivion. Remember the year 1983, an infamous time in the video game industry where In the Hall of the Mountain King begins to play and everything comes crashing down to a depressive time where video games struggle to remain a media platform. It's also known as something else in Japan, but we'll get to that later. For now, we have 12 glorious years to witness the might and power of one of the greatest video game companies at the time. Ted Dabney, born May 2nd, 1937 in San Francisco, became interested in electronics as early as high school, thanks to a math teacher that inspired him. Having enlisted in the United States Marine Corps for a few years, he took courses to further his interest in electronics. When he left the Marines to go to university, however, he couldn't afford the tuition and had to settle on managing electric recording machines at a Bank of America. We're talking ATM work, people. After a year of dissatisfaction, and, you know, <laughs> who can blame him, he bounced to heel at Packard after a few weeks before settling with the company Ampex in 1961, working in the military products department. Now remember the name Ampex. Meanwhile, 
Nolan Bushnell was born February 5th, 1943, in Clearfield, Utah, just a little bit north of Salt Lake City. He was raised a Mormon, but eventually lapsed after a heated debate with a professor in college. Also remember that. <laughs> oh boy. You will find that this is going to be a recurring role in his story, by far. During his time with college, he worked at a place called the Lagoon Amusement Park where he managed the games department, and quickly became enamored with the business of coin machine games and the logistics it holds. Particularly in the scene, it was Midway arcade games that piqued his interest, Watch folks get lured by curiosity and willing to drop quarters at a chance of luck for a prize. After another slew of side jobs that helped pad his engineering degree and some business experience on the side, Nolan moved to California after graduation. Hoping to get hired by Disney, the company denied the fresh graduate and he opted for a role as an electrical engineer over at Ampex in 1969. Nice, by the way. I'm sure you can guess what happened next, though. A friend is a friend. After becoming friends in short order, they both realized that they really enjoyed the intricacies of animatronics and games. Ted loved the idea about how they were built, and Nolan fancied how it could make him money. Nolan pitched his dream idea about making a pizza restaurant packed with arcades and other games where robotic creatures would laugh and dance for show. Uh, my American audience probably is going to get a little uh, suspicious and like, wait, that, kind of sound, that sounds kind of familiar. What's going on here? Soon enough, Nolan convinced Ted in trying to make his idea into a reality. So in 1971, Nolan Bushnell and Tad Dabney formed a small company called Ziggy Engineering. And uh, please, uh, I there's so many, like it's spelled S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. I've actually heard it said so many different times. <laughs> Ziggy, Ziggy, Ziggy. Apparently it's a cool word <laughs> that you can find in the Theosaurus. Please, uh, show mercy. <laughs> Ziggy Engineering. We know Nolan witnessed one of his first games during the college days in Utah, and I cannot stress enough that I would never imagine that the state of Utah would have been the one to introduce someone to video games. This game Nolan first saw, known as Space War, with exclamation point and everything, was a simple spaceship shooting game that was on a DEC PDP-1 computer. The DAC PDP-1 ran on a circular screen and cube monitor. This part of the story, narrated by Nolan himself, feels a bit uh, revisionist, uh, given more of a prophetic origin. Given him the benefit of the doubt, however, he says he realizes that this game, and perhaps many more that he'll make and own, had the potential to join the coin-operated arcade market. It was, by all definitions of the word, an epiphany. Right. And I went into the lab, and there on a screen was the game Space War. But I'd never heard of it, and, and I saw it then. And coincidentally, I was manager of the games department at Lagoon, a, a local amusement park, summers, and I, that was one of the ways I was putting myself through college. And I knew that if I had that screen in my arcades, it would make money. I knew it. Yes. But then you do the math, and then, you know, a million dollar computer and 25 cents a play, and the math didn't work. No. But I knew the cost of computing was constantly coming down, and I knew that, that the curve was going to cross at some point. And, uh, and it did. During their one-year adventure as Zizigi, 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 
Zizigi. During their one-year venture as Zizigi, Nolan and Ted put together their first game, Computer Space, and had it made as the world's first commercially available arcade game. The picture to advertise it showed a futuristic-looking arcade, almost Star Trek-like, and sporting four buttons, a coin slot, and a young woman in white lingerie. <sighs> okay. The company that produced it, and I had to wait this long in the episode to not give away the immature glee I had for this moment, is called Nutting Associates. <laughs> uh, I, I legally can't explain why that's funny. Owned by Bill Nutting. <laughs> Owned by Bill Nutting, who also saw the future of arcade cabinets being a profitable venture, helped Ted and Nolan manufacture 1,500 of these computer space arcade cabinets. The prototype did not do so reasonably well, though. <laughs> and Nolan then had the gall to demand a large ownership of Nutting Associates in order to reap higher profits. <laughs> the dude was trying to bleed money from a stone. When Bill Nutting... God, bless that name. Uh, when Bell Netting refused, they gave each other the metaphorical middle finger, and Nolan continued on with Ted to create Atari Inc. There it is, folks. Sasigi, hardly nothing but a team name, dissolved into nothing, and an icon was born. It is now June 1972, and eleven years remain before annihilation begins. Because the duo, particularly Nolan Bushnell, were both really innovative and creative, you're going to notice a little trend from here on out where Atari has a weird problem with using other media and trying to call it their own. Not to say it was entirely wrong, as any sensible company would steal, copy, or buy any idea they can get if it snags them a buck, but I digress. Nolan and Ted then hired a guy named Alan Alcorn, or as he was well known as, simply Al. Alan Engineer and Computer Scientist was working for Ampex as well when he met Ted, and some quick talk got him aboard Atari with a simple task. Nolan Bushnell liked the game simply called Tennis, particularly the one that came out for the Magnavox Odyssey. The Odyssey, the first ever commercial home video game console, had just come out in September of 1972. Nolan also later claims that he was inspired by previous versions of Tennis he got to play on a computer in college and knew it was his dream to make. But Alan counters this statement by making it clear it was meant to be a warm-up project and also definitely in response to the Odyssey's Tennis. Now, mind you, Nolan apparently also saw, you know, Magnavox's Tennis before it even came out, like the beta. And then this is about to happen. <laughs> oh, boy. Nevertheless, with dollar signs the size of quarters in his eyes, Nolan got Al to put together their own version of Tennis using Ted's circuitry magic. And the world met Pong in November, just two months afterwards. Before it was ready for the world, they decided on testing out a prototype Pong cabinet over at a local bar known as Andy Capps Tavern. Good name. Nolan was out to Chicago the Woo executives at Ball and Midway Manufacturing to license Pong when he got a call from the bar owner that the machine was broken. Oh no! When Al went to check out what the problem was, he swiftly realized that the problem was the coin mechanism. It was being stuffed with quarters so fast it was overflowing. It was a hit!
Backing out of his own deal with the two companies and realization that it might be more profitable to make his own cabinets rather than selling the rights, Nolan sought out financial backing to make more cabinets. The issue with that, however, was that most banks compared Pong to pinball machines, which was largely tied to the mafia and the public perception of Americans. After finally scoring a loan with Wells Fargo, which I would not recommend in current day settings, Atari started grabbing assembly workers from the unemployment office and began to try to mass-produce the arcade cabinets. Now, I say try because it was an incredibly rough start. They could only make about 10 a day, and a lot of them failed quality testing. As the months wore on, however, they were able to step up their game and get Pong rolling out to the entire state, and even overseas to Japan. By 1974, 8,000 machines were installed in entertainment centers worldwide, and Atari became a household name. It is now 1973, and the pieces of the puzzle to Atari's economic demise now begins falling in place. We're getting one step closer to hearing Edvard Grieg's musical masterpiece. The company kept bouncing around larger and larger buildings to accommodate the massive cabinet production when, as per tradition, with prophecies of Nolan, another turn in Atari's less-than-favorable history unfolds. He's always got something to say. Dead quiet all the way back. We pull into the parking lot, and the car, the parking lot's full of cars. I mean, it's just jam-packed full of cars. And uh, Nolan says, all these people depend on us, don't they? I said, yeah. And their landlords and the grocery stores and everything. You know, yeah, they all depend on them. He said, what's it going to be like to be really, really rich? I said, I hate to tell you this, Nolan, but it's not going to be any different. The only thing's going to change the number of zeros because your relationship with money is always the same. And uh, that <laughs> we, had, we had a little incident about that later on. But that was the point when Nolan changed completely. All of a sudden, he realized he was going to be really, really rich. And that that was the end of our relationship. That was the end of anything other than him. It was just him, him. Everything was him. With Pong on the rise, a knife in the dark goes into co-founder Ted Dabney's back. Nolan, ever the entrepreneur, pens Ted's own video circuit idea and leaves Ted's name missing off the sheet. Adding to this betrayal, Nolan ranks Ted into a low-level position focused on some pinball machines that they bought from Nutty and begins excluding him from company meetings within Atari. The massive disrespect of Nolan Bushnell or Silicon Valley Thomas Edison. He believed that Atari was primarily his vision and one he should walk alone to reap the rewards. With spit on his shoes, Ted steps away from the company with $250,000. Looking ahead for a bit, Ted does assist Nolan with getting several businesses together in the future, including Pizza Time Theater which we now know as Chuck E. Cheese's. When Pizza Time Theater went under for the first time and Nolan couldn't pay back Ted, Ted had to shut down his own game company and thus ended the tattered remains of their relationship. We won't hear much about Ted until the 21st century, where he goes back on the record to remind the world how Atari came to be, and how Al is most certainly not a founder despite his own claims, and that Nolan is a piece of crap that won't recognize him. If you ever get a moment and you want to hear from the Shadow King himself, Ted gave an excellent oral history of his time with Atari and can be found in an interview with Chris Garcia, and can be found on YouTube by Computer History Museum. 1973. Ten years remaining. Because Nolan had some pinball machines paying his rent in the early days of Atari, he devised a secret plan to corner the local market by spawning key games 
ran by his next-door neighbor, Joe Keenan. I can't make this up. With rival pinball companies, and I say that very sarcastically, they took advantage of the companies wanting exclusive deals and sold them slightly altered pinball machines, circumventing the whole gatekeeping process and scoring a tidy profit in the meantime. Apparently, this tactic worked like a charm, because Nolan was so impressed with his own work and Joe's aptitude to trick the local distributors. So, he decided to make him the president of Atari the next year. What the heck is going on here? We'll get to that in a second. Using some of the profits from this and that cash cow that is Pong, no one buys up Cyan Engineering after initially using them as a consulting contract for the burgeoning work of cabinets. Now, they're Atari's think tank to make more games and develop a new console. We're now in 1974, and the writing on the wall continues. Financial struggles begin to creep up on Atari as they blow all their dwindling money to get Cyan Engineering into the hot track to success, and Nolan lays off half of his own staff. In a fit of irony, he's forced to Pikachu shock face when other blossoming arcade producers are blatantly ripping off games like Pong, Space Race, and even more Pong games. Grand Track 10, coming out in July of 1974, began eating up costs and accounting mistakes turned it into a nasty blow to Atari's pocket, which reported a $500,000 loss in the 1974 fiscal year. One game that they made cost them a half a million dollars. Oof. It was such a bad situation for the game that they re-released it through their copycat company Key Games as Formula K. It might have made them profit later, but for now, Atari was in hot waters. To make matters worse, Magnavox, who was also Pikachu-facing, unleashed hell with lawsuits over copycat companies, including Atari, who had ripped off their tenants game to make Pong. Realizing it would sink them if they fought it legally, Atari eventually did pay out $1.5 million to Magnavox over in 1977 for the rights to market Pong, and other games that may be a similar in comparison, which is a lot of them. <laughs> In a wild-ditch effort, they opened Atari Japan to start selling their games directly to the Japanese market, but this immediately exploded on the spot, and not in a good way. Because of how Japan's closed market worked in the 70s, Atari Japan was breaking dozens of rules and regulations, and took months of work by their international marketing executive to smooth it over. Atari, realizing doing all this expensive Lego work was even worth the effort, sold Atari Japan to Namco for an oddly familiar $500,000, which made Namco the prime distributor of all Atari games in Japan. To celebrate surviving almost a media bankruptcy and wanting to keep it that way, Atari merges with the more successful key games where Joe Keenan, that neighbor, became the fabled title of president, and Nolan continues to claim the throne as CEO. It turned out that if you had a something about the mass of a of a pool ball, which of course you never have in a bar, <laughs> and you hit the third bolt down on the left side of the coin mech, it'd set up a harmonic vibration and you'd get a free game. And literally, uh, whenever it's possible to cheat and get a free game. The world knows about it in about a femtosecond from the first person who discovers it. I mean, the, the, there's a network. And this is before the, the internet, but it's, it's an incredible. And, uh, and so you hear it from the, the field, hey, the machines quit earning money because people are getting games free. What are you going to do about it? And so 
you put your engineering hat on, you figure out what the problem is, you put dampers in and a, a slam switch and a couple of things in the circuit and you eliminate it. The other one that happened is in dry climates, if they happen to be placed on a uh, carpet and if you could really, really um, get a big electrical charge and if you hit, in this case, it was the top bolt, you'd get a, a spark that would go through and it would reset the machine and about one in three times it will start, start the machine. Well, we saw people doing what became known as the, uh, the Atari shuffle. And if the place didn't have carpet, they would put on nylon jackets and rub against each other <laughs> to get a, get a charge up. And, um, and that was a much harder one to do because the, you know, these high voltage things would go all throughout the digital stuff. But we were able to get that one solved as well. With the cost of integrated circuits getting cheaper and cheaper to make, Atari's Cyan Engineering begins to work on a home console version of Pong after securing a deal with Sears, who had to fling a boatload of money on them just to keep up the supply and demand. We're talking $900,000 IOUs, and multiple of them. Once Sears was able to sell the nifty little toy, however, it sold like gangbusters and Atari saw a financially profitable market for both home consoles and not so much arcades. As long as they kept getting the cash first, anyhow, thank you, Sears. And so Atari fired up Cyan Engineering Steam Engine once again in 1975, tick-tock, and used them to make a new home console, the Atari Video Computer System, or VCS for short, or the Atari 2600, as it's called later on. At a whopping $199 USD, which is about 948 in today's amount, the game could play four Atari games. No one was starting to sweat about the arcade business, because each game would cost around a quarter million to develop and manufacture, and an estimate of 10% of them even being successful. On the other hand, making one game console did well, but there was so much flooding competition that they'd only last a few months before the next big thing came out. The solution? The 2600 console came with two joysticks, a pair of paddles, and a game cartridge with the game combat on it. By using the console as a jumping point for current and future games instead of this one-all-be-all approach, Atari realized that the next blockbuster hit was waiting to happen. During this planning stage, Nolan was approached by a couple of former Atari employees that had previously helped reduce the amount of TTL chips needed on a circuit board. You might know them. Their names are Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Uh-huh. The duo were now working on a small computer prototype called the Apple One? Sounds familiar, which was made from borrowed Atari parts. They wanted to sell the computer design to Nolan, but the CEO wanted Atari to focus on arcade and home consoles. Computers weren't the future of money. Turned away, they came back later that year to offer one-third equity stake in their new little company called Apple Inc. Nolan scoffed at the 50000 price tag and sent them on the way. He had other, more important priorities, such as getting the Atari 2600 off the ground. Apple. <laughs> what was going to happen with them, right? The problem to getting this holy vision to everyone's entertainment stand was, once again, capital. The green snake. Cha-ching. Nolan, who was ready to make a huge and swim in a pool of money Scrooge McDuck style, decided it was time to step up a tier of financing and sell Atari to Warner Communications for a ludicrous estimation of around $30 million. 
Nolan Thomas Edison Bushnell, the engineering and capital adventurous extraordinaire he wanted us to think, finally made it big. But at the same time, he sealed his own fate, and to some degree, Atari's. Taking some of that scratch and buying the infamous Folgers Mansion, the Atari got greenlit into production for a late 1977 release. Now, I want to take a moment here to reflect on everything so far, because frankly, it's a lot to digest. Humble beginnings, talk about prophetic realizations, arrogant leadership with blatant idea-stealing and backstabbing. There's so much to take in. Crap hasn't even hit the fan yet, and Atari's turbulent past has been swinging wildly between huge millionaire success and I'm broke, please send money, woo. As the company grows bigger under Warner's control, please keep in mind that to continue this play-by-play would mean I'd be making a 10-hour special. Most of you don't want the 10-hour special. If you do want the 10-hour special, DM me and I will give you my PayPal to negotiate the 10-hour special. I'll get down to the nitty-gritty and tell you Ted's blood type and childhood trauma for the right price. I hope you understand that I'll be trimming the fat here and there so I can deliver to you the juiciest slices of drama as we edge nearer to the dreaded year of 1983. We're at the halfway point, and I promise you that things get crazier from here on out. Thank you for your patience. Nineteen seventy-seven. Six years remaining for something. Less time for others. Project Stella, the code name for the Atari twenty-six hundred, received a hundred and twenty million dollar payday. Yeah, the complete development as Atari was settling off their copycat lawsuit with the Magnavox. The Atari VCS, or what I will call it from now on, the the Atari 2600, released in September of 1977, and hosted a whole slew of games from the start, like Tank Plus, Pong Sports, Blackjack, Outer Space, and much more. Note here that some of these games are what we refer to as Sears titles, which are the game names the big retail chain thought would market better for their consumers. They actually renamed the Atari titles to suit their own needs. Atari managed to make 400,000 Atari 2600s for the holiday of 1977, most of which sold like hotcakes. There was a hiccup or two, however. The system was believed to have a short shelf life of a few years, and Atari couldn't meet the full demand of the public for Christmas. Because of production chain issues, it's estimated that they lost out on around $25 million missing the window, and is getting now less demanded consoles to the shelves. To help compensate with this, they released an enigma of commercialism called the Atari Video Music, where you plugged in audio cables and it'd create graphic images on your television. Think synthwave techno vibes. People politely applaud the novelty, but the feelings quickly wore off with the $170 price tag, which is like $760 in 2021 standards. The Atari Video Music went silent in 1978. Speaking of 1978, Five, Five years, years remaining. remaining. Hold on Hold to your hat, folks. folks. With home computers starting to take off with Apple, and eventually IBM using Bill Gates' Microsoft OS, Warner's Atari began pushing hard on the successor to the 2600 the moment it reached the public. Adding a mouse and keyboards to the mix, the Atari 800 and 400 were being developed using computer-based operating systems that allowed them to house more firepower, while still cornering the market with their own proprietary equipment and games. 
During this development stage for the future consoles, which was overlapping the massive turnout of the 2600s, Nolan Bushnell had a bone to pick with Warner, the company that bought them. The company, hoping to boost sales, put Ray Caster in charge of the marketing of the console to give it wings, and he did a fabulous job for it. He managed to put out all sorts of ads into the market and positioned it for a good run through 1978, starting with some traditional look at me kind of ads with celebrities saying how much they want to play it. Okay, Atari, let's see your best pitch. You're out, Rose! I quit soccer to play Atari. You need more practice, Haley. You can't keep me in here, Atari. The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set. Don't just watch television tonight. Play it. Anyone for Atari? She beat me again? The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set. Atari, they tell me you're fast. Don't watch television tonight. Play it. So if Ray Kasser is doing a stellar job getting the Atari name on the board, what was irking Nolan so much? He kept insisting that they were overproducing 2600s, and Atari was rushing a bubble to keep up with the hype that Kasser was generating. Nolan, as we know was a savvy but occasionally ruthless businessman, felt that the gaming company was punching way above their belt at this point with Warner taking charge. He also pointed out that they needed to innovate the console further, rightfully so, and not continue to dump out more and more games for the slowly aging console. Turns out though, if you sell your company to a big dog and then complain a lot about trying to make too much money, things happen. One day, Warner executives sit down with Nolan in one of those fancy 50 chair meeting tables and they begin bickering. The executives are convinced that Nolan is sandbagging too hard while Nolan thinks Warner is inflating Atari to failure. When the dust settles from the heated argument, Warner flat out fires Nolan, to which he announced, You can't fire me because I quit. Classy. He was even offered a less noble director and creative consultant position, but Nolan wasn't about to stay in disgrace. In a last-ditch effort to save face, he buys back the rights to the Pizza Time Theater for $500,000 and renames it Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Theater. From there, Nolan joins his co-founder, Ted, to exit Sage left of the Atari stage. And that's going to be the last that we hear of Nolan. For now, for now, for now. With his friend and neighbor cut out of the picture, Joe Keenan gets put on as chairman of Atari while Kasser closes in to the top spot as president. But in a daring move, Joe also beats Fee a few months later to join Nolan's business and Kasser gets promoted to CEO and chairman of Atari. Thus begins the first nail of the coffin of Atari's future as we enter 1979. 8-Bit Orchestra, get those hit blocks warmed up. Raymond Kasser, born January 2nd, 1928 from Brooklyn, New York, had previously worked for Burlington, famous for their titanic textile industry. 
Climbing up the ranks over 26 years to executive vice president and a member of the board, he padded his resume very nicely as he split off to make his own clothes company that sold cotton shirts with the caster name on it. When he arrived at Atari as president of the consumer division, aka the king of marketing, he saw that there were cracks already building in the floorboards of the company. Much like a nerdy school club facing off against the jocks, there was the original Atari staff, mostly programming engineers that have experience with the games, and the new Warner staff hire, who was specialized in business. Knowing full well which group he fell in rank with when he became president of Atari, Ray decided it was time for a shakedown to straighten out the record and smooth out some edges. These programmers, whom he referred to with disdain as spoiled brats and prima donnas in interviews, were going to be a headache if they are going to keep up with their griping. Meanwhile, the programmers were equally as peeved at their new leader, as he began furiously implementing harder guidelines similar to his old job at Burlington, earning him titles like the Sock King and Tower Czar. Ray's straight-to-the-cut attitude had mixed results in the short term, with equally great and horrific effects in the long run. The good news was his strategy technically worked. As far as the brutal capitalism was concerned, Atari went from having made $75 million in 1977 all the way to a staggering $2.2 billion in three years. Ray Cassar could be easily attributed to the successful golden years of Atari between then and 1980, but guess what? That's where the crap started hitting the fan. Right from the start, Ray believed he was the new pioneer of video games, and alone should share the credit with Atari. Under Big Daddy Warner, of course. Not afraid to make enemies of his own employees, he twisted arms and bruised egos to get his way. One such occasion was when Ray wanted to release a Superman game in 1979, after the success of his movie counterpart the year before. To make sure this came out swiftly, he commanded his developer employee Warren Robinette to overhaul his current project, Adventure, into a Superman game. Warren refused to mutilate his work, and Ray, not giving this guy the time of day, ripped the project right out of his hands and gave it to another volunteering programmer, John Dunn. Astonishingly, the final product was actually received incredibly well, and lauded for its multiple screen usage and unique game mechanics, such as flying and kissing Lois Lane when Superman loses his powers from touching kryptonite. Naturally, this was only the beginning of Ray's belaboring behavior towards his programmers. Through him, Warner wanted to make sure that any gaming talent that made a game under their umbrella was never to get credit for any of their work publicly, an unfortunately common practice at the time. Besides humility, Warner was worried that if their Atari games did well, competitors would try to find developers behind the title and, God forbid, headhunt them with better contracts and general humanitarian improvements. It's because of this censorship that Warren, who eventually did get to make and release his Project Adventure as a game, made one of the first ever Easter eggs by hiding his name within the game. Getting around a little bit here, it shouldn't be much of a surprise that a ton of the original Atari employees, mostly programmers, were either fired or flat-out quit due to the miserable treatment they received from their corporate boss. Even Al Alcorn, the creator of Pong, wasn't free of his ire. Besides getting stripped away from any recognition of their work, they were paid like crap while the company managed to make millions of dollars. Remember, over this bone-chilling grind, the company made over $2 billion, and these folks are barely getting enough to afford their rent and bills. When some of the programmers asked for a small commission percentage of the games they made to incentivize making something quality, however, Ray's response was so cold-blooded that it made Nolan look like a charitable saint. Ray's words were, and I quote, 
You are no more important to that game than the guy in the assembly line who puts it together. Raycaster made it clear by this point that he did not care about the programmers. He hated the attitude they gave, these silly notions that their work is their art, or that they deserve a cent more for typing on their keyboard. When four of the programmers there witnessed this chapter of their future, and you may know them as David Crane, Bob Whitehead, Larry Kaplan, and Alan Miller, well, they gave deuces to Atari and peaced out, taking out 60% of the company's current revenue flow with them. Forming their own gaming company for Atari, the origin of Activision starts with the arrogant words of a 1970s corporate buffoon. What's up everybody, I'm Greg Miller and this is David Crane. Now David Crane, you are a legend in the video game industry, are you aware of this? A legend, is that the same as an old guy? No. You are, there's a lot of old guys I don't care about. I care a lot about you, all right? Okay. Let's good. run down, okay, you, you, you co-found Activision. You worked for Atari before that. Co-found Activision. Then, you go on to make this game Pitfall. It does pretty well. Remember, what was it like co-founding Activision? Well, was that scary to leave Atari to go do this? You know, it wasn't that scary. Um, I was single, living in an apartment, eating tuna sandwiches. I mean, <laughs> I did not have, you know, a large budget to have to deal with. And, um, we had uh, been working at Atari, the four of us who founded Activision uh, had been working at Atari and kind of hanging together and working together. And Atari, the, um, the working conditions had really started to fail. And uh, so we thought, hey, let's go off and do something on our own. Uh, we were either just going to go and uh, become a developer, development house, one of the only ever, yeah. first ever, <laughs> and just develop back for Atari and make twice as much money because they had to pay sure. more for outside development. Um, all the way up to designing and publishing our own cartridges. So that's where we ended up. We got uh, connected with Jim Levy, a record industry executive, and uh, he raised the money and we made the product. And the first uh, third-party software publisher in the video game cartridge industry was born. The big bucks Atari raked in wasn't just from shortchanging their developers, however. Arcade cabinets started coming out of the company by storm at this point, with Lunar Lander and their mega-hit Asteroids, oh yeah, fitting arcade centers in the U.S. Missile commands, Centipede, and Tempest also dominated the field. Several pinball machines for things like Superman and Hercules were also making footholds and malls everywhere. Dozens of variations of the same game of Pong, Asteroids, and Breakout were also just bouncing between the arcades and the 2600. They even tried to make handheld games, but after making a mobile version of the arcade game Touch Me, which does not fare well as a name nowadays, they gave up the idea once Al Alcorn split away. The big Kahuna console that put them firmly at the top of the world, however, didn't make its appearance on the 2600 until 1980. Space Invaders. The arcade classic by Tomohiro Nishikado was already booming in Japan through the company Taito and Midway ran the arcade side of things over the rest of the world. Atari may have done well with Asteroids, but if they could get Space Invader on the 2600s? Warner couldn't pass this one up, and Ray Kasser pursued the rights religiously. Before the rights were even obtained, Rick Moore was already going full copycat mode and building the 2600 of the popular game. Once the rights were secured, Rick went in full hog finishing that game, and it hit shells in March of 1980. And it blew up, and this time, in a good way.
Atari. People loved the holy heck out of it, and it was Atari's first ever official system seller. Raking in an easy $100 million in sales, Kasser puffed with pride at his achievement of smooth talk in the deal, and he began chartering for more conversions of popular arcade games to throw into the console, alongside company games to popular media at the time. Don't think I missed it, though, and neither have you. I said 1980. The phrase crap hits all the fans and all that jazz. Remember 1983? Remember Activision? The pot's about to get stirred here, and Atari's chili is about to get a little bit spicy. By this point, Atari was a huge chunk of Warner's revenue income, as we see the biggest boom in the video game industry at this point. However, competition was beginning to rise, the chip at the jackpot that Warner wanted to hoard for themselves. The Commodore VIC-20 was starting to etch in popularity, and Mattel now has that in television, sitting on the playing field. A half dozen competitors sprung up and it began to bite Warner in the butt for their lack of loyalty. The Emerson Acadia, the Sears Telegames, the Intellivision 2, the Fairchild Channel F, the Magnavox Odyssey 2, and Bali Astrocade all launched as companies, sick of writing each other's tailcoats and thought it was wise to launch on their own. To make matters more tedious for Atari, the Score and Activision group began to reverse engineer the 2600 and started churning out games like crazy. Within the first year, Activision made six games to play on the 2600, and a lot more over the next few years. Notably, Pitfall. Hmm. Other third-party developers found purchase in the new groove, and within a few short years, almost 400 third-party games flooded in the market over Atari's 100 and change first party. We're talking like for the one. Atari, whose financial strategy was to sell the console for a little profit and to make a big on their own games, began suing the living daylights out of everyone, especially Activision. Wanted to drive them to the ground and defame them as a bunch of sassy sues that whined about recognition, Atari realized soon enough that they were in a losing battle, and settled for a small royalty for every third-party game that sold for their console. So now, everyone wins, now that there's going to be almost half a thousand games to totally not flood the gaming market. Right? Right? Right, guys? The problem was, a lot of them were terrible on both sides. Most of these companies had little to no experience in the business and just wanted to milk the cash cow. A funny yet stern example was the oatmeal maker Quaker Oats who made Sneak and Seek, a hide-and-seek game for Atari. Why people thought it was a great idea to make somebody hide in a digital house and pray an AI system doesn't hunt them down satisfactory, or worse, trust a friend to keep his eyes closed in real life was going to be a great game, is beyond me. Now, Ray's Atari, writing off the colossal success of Space Invaders, was ready to see lightning strike twice so he could catch it in a bottle. This came in the form of Namco's Pac-Man, which became an instant arcade mega hit in 1980 and was sweeping the entire nation. Warner, smelling their money wanting to drop into their laps, secured a deal with Namco to get Pac-Man exclusively in the 2600. In theory, this spelled success in every sense of the word. The story's chapter of interest begins of that of one Mr. Todd Fry. He was an employee for Atari, and I had to fact check this because some sources suggested he was just some conniving freelancing goon they contracted, and this is very untrue. He's a genuine programmer that was caught in the middle of corporate cogs, and what resulted is astonishingly beautiful and embarrassing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So Warner, realizing at this point that shortchanging their programmers was shooting themselves in the foot a little bit as we look at Exhibit A for Activision, they decided to do a bonus program where each time a developer's game gets a cartridge manufactured, the programmer gets a cut. Heck yeah, a whole dime. A whole dime. Ten cents for my international listeners. Atari corporate execs landed the Pac-Man port project into Todd's lap and told him several interesting facts. The first was that Atari was going to make 12 million cartridges. This sounded promising. The second was that Todd had less than four months to remake one of the biggest arcade games of all time to fit in the now matured 2600. Now, Todd Fry was a good programmer. Heck, I would say he's a great one. With what Atari told him to accomplish was dang near impossible, with due respect. They made him design for the weaker the two cartridges available first and foremost, because they were more readily available and they were more interested in selling more copies than the design of the game itself. Wouldn't you know? Believing that the two-player mode was going to be what saves this game from dunking, Todd focused on using a fifth of the memory of the entire 2600, solely to keep scores and save info for the second player that might not even be there. Crippling the gameplay further, he decided it wasn't even worth putting computing power to manage anti-flickering, the stuff that is mostly, very often, almost any arcade game, and meaning moving objects would just look like animated seizure warnings. Now this meant that there was a chunky moving Pac-Man being chased by amnesiac teleporting ghosts, as the game was ready to shoot fire out of its non-existent exhaust because of a second player that might be there. To add a cherry on top of this, Todd Fry did a little bit of malicious compliance. Atari had a strict policy that only space games can have black backgrounds. Pac-Man, in the arcade, very notably had said black background. Either Todd was going to argue to canonize that Pac-Man is in the greatness of outer space, or he was going to have to rehaul the color formula of the entire map. Guess which one he did? I'll give you a hint. Everything turned into a massive neon blue real quick. The end result was predictable, much to Atari's credit. The game sold monumentally well and became one of the best-selling games on the 2600, which is an amazing achievement. To their dismay, however, only 7 million out of the 12 million copies were ever sold. Once people found out it looked like crap, felt like crap, and played like crap, the numbers fell off quickly, but the damage was already done. Atari may have made a huge profit, but it finally blew a hole in the gaming bubble. People couldn't trust big names to be reliable anymore. And we'll soon see the coup de grace as we approach the black line of 1983. On a side note, while both the consumers and Atari both lost in this horrible tragedy of what should have been a good hit, Ted Fry made out like a bandit. Those 12 million copies made meant that Ted was an instant millionaire, despite how awful the game was. In the end, I commend Ted for doing his best with the strangling rules and regulations that held him down, while a looming deadline approached far too fast. Ted's the protagonist in this part of the episode. Everyone, be more like Ted. Now, during the developing fiasco of Pac-Man, Atari sensed a disturbance in the forest, as they took notice of a company called General Computer Corporation, or GCC for short. They are developing hardware for the modern-day equivalent arcade ROM hacks, allowing those who installed it to modify certain games to provide variety in color. Remember Miss Pac-Man? Yep, that was the handiwork of these folks. As Atari readied up the suing cannon and began to aim the reticle at GCC, they hesitated. 
they began to read more and more of these escapades. They were modding Atari games and funneling business away, sure. But what if they were modding Atari games and funneling more business back to Atari? Hmm? The game company took the lawsuit matters out of the court and actually took on GCC as a consulting company. With GCC by their side, games like Food Fight and Quantum became brand new arcade games, a la key game style. They even made a better version of Miss Pac-Man and even Centipede for the 2600. Things were starting to look up for Atari, with the sudden flush of decent games amongst the nervous consumers, and they decided to use GCC to support their next console to succeed the 2600. This is also the same time they loaded another bullet to shoot the proverbial foot. Because Ray Kasser's Atari has followed the mantra of Act big now, do big later, the company was hedging all bets on driving out their biggest competitor, Mattel's Intellivision. Near the end of 1981, they asked all their distributors to commit to ordering every game they wanted to sell for the following year. Atari wanted to be ready this time after Pac-Man being overproduced, and the distributors were more than ready to place big bets and even bigger orders to get copious amounts of profit. Once the top quality games <laughs> hits the shelves. To categorize what happened for the year of 1982, particularly the end of it, we need to observe different viewpoints from external factors. The first is that third-party developers were at full throttle at this point, making bland and sometimes rip-off games of Atari's own design, which began to chip at their profits. Activision, Magic, and Parker Brothers were just a few among sellers that was mass-pumping out duds that sold for cheap, and compared over to the mediocre Atari games that were going for the full price of $20 to $30, that's $70-$80 in today's amounts. Meanwhile, Atari was prepping to release the Atari 5200 at the end of the year, the premium upgrade to its 2600 predecessor. While it looked and felt new, it had an almost identical computer, graphics, and even sound hardware as the 2600. Almost the same. Like, super, super duper close. Like, Game Boy the Game Boy Color close. It is absurd how close it was. To add salt to the wound, it couldn't even play the original 2600 games while their own competing consoles, the Intellivision and now the joining ColecoVision, could. They somehow thought it was a great idea to separate their own player base with a copycat clone of their own console, while companies were happy to pick up their displaced consumers. Consider their foot shot, but the barrel was still smoking when Atari loaded another bullet, and this one is gonna be lethal. As orders for Atari games were being hit with cancellations by the very same distributors that were being hyped for Atari's big comeback, they knew they needed the hardest-hitting, mind-exploding game to land them into the holiday of 1982. Atari hired 4,000 more employees to spread their majestic wings to a 10,000-wide company, readying their three divisions of arcade games, home consoles, and even home computers. They were too big to fail at this point. But when there's a hole in the bubble, too much pressure is going to make it pop. Let me tell you a sordid tale, my friends. It's an infamous story told time and time again, and is a valid reminder for the importance of gaming quality. You can have all the marketers in the world promoting your game. Every person on the phone line is trying to score big deals to get your cartridge to the shelves for the kids to play. Every whipped crack by the micromanaging executives from Warner and Atari as they demand more and more blood from the cold stone of their programmers. It won't do you a single bit of good 
If your chokehold starts at the very beginning with a programmer not given enough time and vision to make a decent game. This is the tale of a game called E.T. The movie E.T. had just come out in 1982, thanks to the work of director Steven Spielberg and his cast. The movie, very simply put, is about a friendly but weird alien that lands on Earth, is taken in as a child, and they build a beacon to signal the home of the alien, known as E.T., using children's toy. E.T. starts to get sick, the kid rescues him from the government to bring him back to the beacon, where E.T. is rescued on a mothership and everyone is happy. I swear it's much better than how I describe it, but to each their own. So, the movie's a big success, and Warner, who had previously gotten the license to one of Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones movies, already had a foot in the door to secure another license. Steve Ross, the CEO of the mega company Warner itself, had his executives line up with Universal Pictures. With the movie fresh in theaters on June 11, 1982, Warner and Spielberg secured the gaming license six weeks later at the end of July. This is great! Not too shabby for a 25 million deal. Give it five or six months, a few dedicated programmers, promote the heck out of it, and it'll be a done deal for Christmas gifts everywhere. Right? Oof. Right? Hello? Somebody out there? E.T. Video game? It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T. Running away from secret agents, falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on earth. A friend. E.T. Only from Atari. Howard Scott Warshaw was given the sole and exclusive task of programming the game together with just five weeks to do it. Atari, who had a fatally similar line of thinking as they did with Pac-Man, was convinced that the market was a bunch of morons that would just buy the game because of the huge success of the film. Not caring about the quality of the game itself or any component that wasn't tied to getting eyes on it and money flying into their pockets, it was already set against all odds. Even Ray Kasser himself, who was asked about making the game, said, I think it's a dumb idea. We, we've we never made an action game out of a movie. Apparently, he forgot about the time he forced a Superman game thanks to the recent movie. But to his credit, E.T. was being pushed by the one thing that had absolute authority over him. Warner itself. So our developing lad Warshaw, who was handpicked by Spielberg himself for his work on the Raiders of the Lost Ark game, was thrown into the gauntlet. Sure, it took him six months to make that game, and seven months to make Yar's Revenge, but surely if you tell somebody they have five weeks, they'll just, I don't know, pull it off, right? He was even offered $200,000 in a fully paid trip to Hawaii if he managed it, and was flown by private jet to meet Spielberg, who was ecstatic, by the way. When Warshaw began making the game, though, things flew off the handle immediately. The game was about E.T. running around six levels and leaping into pits to escape local angry adults and try to find pieces of a phone to get back home. It was boring and monotonous, to say the least. When Atari executives and him showed the game to Spielberg, he was flabbergasted. Couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man, he decried? Warshaw, who later regrets this moment, thought that such an idea would be terrible for E.T. and think a pithole diving would capture the essence of the movie. Warner, and through them Atari, was two thumbs up the whole way, thinking that if the crap like Pac-Man can score 7 million copies, this would be sure to clear the market. 
Even the ad was there to hype the game for Christmas, where little E.T. would hobble in in a Santa outfit, as cute Christmas music mixed with the movie's theme. Only from Atari. Made especially for systems from Atari. The video game that lets you help E.T. get home. Just in time for Christmas. Happy Holidays from Atari. He walked over to pick up his beloved game, popped in into the Atari 2600, and we see a whole two seconds of game footage. When E.T. was being primed for sale with 5 million cartridges to be ready for children around the world, Retailers began to load up when suddenly, cancellations started coming back. Remember Ray Kasser? Oh, how could you forget? When he first arrived on the scene as CEO, one of the first things he did was burn bridges with the distributors that Nolan Bushnell had built, thinking them too small time or inconvenient with him. This trend went on for a while, with the attitude of the prom queen knowing that everyone had to order for them, and on their terms. Now that there was dozens of other competing games in the market for Christmas, however, Retailers and their distributors had options, and didn't feel the need to pamper the surprised Atari. With strained grins and sweaty confidence, Atari tried their best to negotiate, assert, and even threaten the distributors to get as many E.T. copies as they could before the holidays. And when they squeezed as hard as they could, that whole riddled bubble finally popped. The game sold. I will give the credit due there. It sold around 2.6 million copies, in fact. And for that, I commend the hard work of the marketing team. When January of 1983 rolled around, and millions of children cried at this terrible game, however, hundreds of thousands of copies were shoved right back into Atari's face. Almost 3 million copies weren't even looked at and were left in the warehouse. Critics thrashed Atari for making what is considered to this day as one of the worst video games in history. Retailers complained across the country about the horrific sales as they endured after being arm-pressed to buy these copies by the same people that threatened them. The game value quickly dropped lower than the cartridge itself was worth and became gag gifts and doorstops. Atari, so embarrassed about the whole situation, took the remaining cartridges along the abyssal Pac-Man leftovers and sent around 15 semi-tracks packed with them to a landfill in El Paso, Texas. There, they crushed them bury them, and covered it with a layer of concrete to hide the shame. This is how bad this hurt the gaming economy. The damage it managed to create crippled the market faith in games, and the backlash was so strong, it sent Atari $500 million in debt for the year. What year was it? Oh, 1983. Wait a minute. Let's recap what just happened. In the past few years, Atari began making games under Ray Kasser, who hated his own programmers and the original design Nolan placed for a functioning growth of games. Getting rid of Nolan like Julius Caesar scoffed away the soothsayer, Ray and his executives began squeezing their programmers to produce as many games as humanly possible, all the while telling distributors that it was their house and their rules. The programmers were treated like dogs, and most of the original crew revolted and left and begun forming their own companies to make games like Activision. Companies sprung up and begun doing what Atari first did and recycled older games into newer brands, causing a kerfluffle of anger and resentment between anyone involved, while the market was seeing the same things over and over. Every step of the way, Atari kept choosing the fastest and most egregious ways to make money at the expense of game quality, 
because they thought consumers would trust the Atari name that shines bright in the commercials, and they were right at first. Now, a dozen other companies were doing the same thing, and it was beginning to work for them too. Atari tries to swing their weight around with lawsuits and legal obstruction to no avail, leaving them open for a loophole-style treatment of their 2600, as other companies overproduce games for cheap on their own console. Meanwhile, other consoles could also play 2600 games, and were offering cheaper prices for their own, while Atari gouged the public for games of equally insufficient quality. To try to set the line for the future of gaming, and with them as the flag bearers, they released a remodeled copycat console of their own system, the 5200, which the most unique differences from their predecessor was a few extra accessories and the fact they couldn't play their own Atari 2600 games. This flopped. Start the music. Unable to produce any original games that had legs, they took their shot at Namco's Pac-Man for the consoles and wanted to milk the sediment of the arcade hit for their own dollars. Not caring that the game was actually going to be good and just wanted the money in the short term, they pressured a single developer to recreate Pac-Man in the Blast Furnace fashion, creating a lackluster copy that couldn't reach their own primary milestone and made a large number of the buyers super wary of buying games as they hit the shelves. Competitors are beating Atari up for shelf space as games from third party outnumber the company's game line for the one, and seeing the writing on the wall try to go for the mega home run with E.T. and making the tightest and most dangerous timetable ever seen in video game history. Shocking and upsetting Spielberg in the process, they flash cook E.T. within five weeks and tell everyone in the world that this is going to be their best game yet, and that every single parent, grandparent, and their dog should buy a copy for Christmas. Retailers get their doubts because there's already a couple of good potential games already there for Christmas, but Atari goes full Karen on them and tries to make the disillusioned distributors kiss the ring in the form of over-ordering for the big day. E.T. hits the shells and kids are exuberant that Santa got them exactly what they wanted for Christmas. Atari pops out the champagne for the great commercial finish of 1982, and they believe they tricked the public into buying dog crap once again. However, most folks that would have fallen prey learned their lesson from Pac-Man, avoided the game like the plague until the reviews hit, and critics sent the scores to hell and back. The game was returned back to the company so much that exhausted retailers swore to never stock an Atari game again. The number of copies sold dropped significantly, and the profits turned immediately into losses as they were left with over 50% of the games they were supposed to scam the world with. They report a loss in growth so big that stocks in the company plummet drastically. The gaming market loses faith in companies selling quality games. Almost every company focusing on making or selling the games became crippled with financial burdens and mistrust, and we get to see the full might of the video game crash of 1983. Or, as it's called in Japan, the Atari Shock. Mic drop, raise the music to full volume. That's going to be it for part one of Atari as we saw the backbone of gaming history get built, as well as what happens when capitalism begins to crack their own spine for greed. 
Part two, we'll be looking at what happened to Ray Kasser as he struggles to keep Warner's grip on the dying Atari, where the company changes hands to, and the wild diversions it makes to try to both stay financially afloat and relevant. My sources were the History of Atari by the Gaming and Technology Variety Channel, Cold Fusion's video article called From Two Billion to Nothing, The Rise and Fall of Atari, several of Nolan Bushnell's interviews as viewed on Cal Entertainment Speakers, Startup Grind, and VG Legacy. An interview with Ted Dabney in the early history of Atari as seen on Computer History Museum. Website articles that encapsulate the history and drama include ComputerHistory.org, Keza McDonald's article IGN Presents, The History of Atari, and the About Us page on Atari.com. Several other hundreds of personal accounts were reflected and reviewed despite conflicting information, and most of these can be found on and looked at personally by my final source mentioned of Wikipedia. You can find me on Twitter at 2 Tyler, all letters, one word. There is a fledgling Twitter called the Arcade Report, but as I said before, I don't know if the popularity of the reports will be enough to warrant that. I'll figure that one out later. Intro and outros by Adhesive Wombat. I hope you enjoyed the second episode, and I can't wait to share with you more deep dives into the arcades of gaming history, but until then, don't forget to pay your programmers and give them more than five weeks. See y'all later. Report is a part of Final Plank Media, a glorious collection of podcasts of hilarious types. You can find more of their work at finalplank.com.